But the other way to describe the Constitution is that it's the nation's DNA. It is what um, makes us. It is the bound from within with which we grow. Um, and if it's our DNA and it has not recognised First Nations people in a strong way, then Australia is, is woefully incomplete. We acknowledge country, we acknowledge First Nations people, we celebrate it, our kids more and more do it in schools. They're proud of this culture, a culture that's over 100,000 years. And when that is in our DNA, then we have a lot to be proud of. You know, Australia becomes one culture, basically, over 100,000 years old. What is the best version of us, and how do we actually build it? I'm Lillian Spencer, and you're listening to The Remakers. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show today and to a conversation with our very special guest, Thomas Mayer. If you're not already familiar with him, Thomas Mayer is a Torres Strait Islander man, an author, a unionist, an advocate who grew up in mainland Australia in Darwin, which is on Larrakia country. Now, it's not exactly obvious from his childhood that Thomas would go on to become any of these things because he was so shy as a kid that people actually thought that he was mute. But he became a warfie at a pretty young age and joined the union movement. He joined the Maritime Union of Australia, and that is really where he found his voice. It's where he learned about negotiating and advocating and how to work together. So we talk about his time in the union movement and what it taught him, how he sort of started to connect the dots between the struggle for working people's rights and the struggle for First Nations rights and how that divide and conquer tactic was really being used to try to silence both. And so thankfully for all of us, uh, once Thomas found that voice, he really hasn't let it go. Today, he's the author and co-author of multiple books, the most recent of which is called Dear Sons, and it's a collection of letters and reflections from First Nations fathers and sons. He's also written a children's book about the Uluru Statement called Finding Our Heart and a couple of others, which are all linked to on your show notes. So today's conversation is really about finding your voice, about coming together, especially after a struggle to be stronger than we were before. And it's about closing the gap, not just in life expectancy or literacy rates, but really that profound gap between the world as we know it and the world that our children imagine already exists. Here's Thomas Mayer. Okay, Thomas Mayer, welcome to The Remakers. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Lily. Happy to be here with you. 
Now, I'm recording our part of this conversation on Darug country, and I'd like to pay my respects to elders um, past and present and just acknowledge the traditional owners of these beautiful lands and waters. And where are you coming from today? Uh, I'm coming from Larrakia country, so I just want to pay my respects to the Larrakia people and the elders past and present. Wonderful. So, um, I've already given our audience a little bit of an introduction at the very top of the show to you and your story and some of the work that you've done, but I'd really like to start by just giving you the space to introduce yourself for anyone who's not already familiar with you. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of growing up and maybe some of the forces that shaped you and how you came to be doing the work that you're doing today? Yeah, well, I um, I grew up on Larrakia country. I've always lived here, though I'm a Torres Strait Islander. Uh, my old man came here when he was 17 years old, and uh, he was the first of his, uh, you know, of his people, that generation of uh, Torres Strait Islanders that were um, no longer under the chief protector, you know, or it, it sounds like a protector, but it was under the complete control of uh, people that treated, uh, you know, Indigenous people quite poorly. Um, for example, they could steal our children. Um, you know, when my dad was a child with impunity, they could um, direct us to work without pay, slavery, um, decide who we could, who we were allowed to marry and where we could live and what the curfews were, uh, all of these complete control. Um, so he came to Darwin. He, he came onto the mainland like many Torres Strait Islanders at that time uh, to start to earn some money and um, and build a life. You know, so that's uh, I think it's an important thing to note that only in my father's lifetime have um, Indigenous peoples been able to accumulate wealth, basically without it being stolen or uh, you know without uh, with some equality. And so he worked in a mine here, met my mother, ended up staying here. You know, his intent was to come and earn enough money to buy a boat back home and fish and everything. Um, but, uh, yeah, so this is where I've always lived in Darwin. Uh, my demeanour has always been a very quiet person. People thought that I was mute. I was so quiet, whether it was at footy or, at you know, at school or the workplace. Um, but it's through the union movement that I really found my voice. I became a wharfie when I was 17 years old working at the port. Uh, it's a very strong union. I was a very young man during the 1998 Patrick's dispute, um, which was, for those that don't know about that, it was when wharfies all around the country were locked out of their livelihoods. Um, John Howard, uh, you know, a master of divide and conquer, colluded with Patrick Stevedores, a big Stevedore, you know, wharfie company. And, uh, and and physically dragged us in the middle of the night in a in a military type manoeuvre, um, and locked us out of our our jobs. Um, you know there was a, a huge dispute for several months. Uh, picket lines all around the country. Uh, normal citizens came out and, uh, and well realised what an injustice it was, um, and joined us on the picket lines. And eventually. Um, and this is important to the Uluru Statement when I talk about it a bit, so I'll go in a bit more detail. But eventually, we walked back into the gates because our union was long established, had fought for many social justice issues for many other you know, minorities and, and vulnerable communities, uh, including First Nations people. So that was part of the reason why we got the support um, from the community. 
and uh, and we had the resources as well because our union had done the right thing with our members' money for a very long period of time, uh, and we walked back into the gates. Anyway, a great lesson for me uh, on the value of unity. Uh, it was um, soon after that that all of the older, uh, strong union delegates that were a part of uh, keeping us together for so long and, and winning all the conditions, they retired. And so that's how I eventually found my voice because I was a young, quiet man that knew that there was a lot of sacrifice put into the wages and conditions that I enjoyed and I felt compelled to step up and be a delegate because a lot of the newer guys on the wharf, twice my age, had no idea about how these um, great conditions came about. So um, it was after 16 years of being a wharfie that I became a union official. And so as a long period of being a delegate and then being a union official, I've learned how to speak publicly pretty well. I've learned how to negotiate, you know, to understand, you know, legal documents and terms and all these sorts of things. And then as an official, I became more active in Indigenous rights because I had the support of the union membership, uh, I had the skills, and I felt like I had something to, to give back to my community. I mean, we could just spend the next six hours talking about any number of points that you just raised in the very introduction to your story. I do feel like I want to go back for anyone who maybe doesn't know the story of the strike that you're talking about or what what happened, Um, whether because it was before their time or maybe they're listening from outside of Australia. Why were you prevented from going to your job in the first place? What What was the core issue? So the issue was that there was a strategy from a um, anti-union government, basically, the Howard government, to divide and conquer workers. Um, it's that ideology of that um, you know wealth is only for um, a few, uh, and that even a company that makes millions of dollars, um, you know, should not need to pay their workers well and give them decent terms and conditions. The strategy of the Howard government was to destroy the Maritime Union of Australia, my union, um, which was a very strong militant union that has a very important piece of the logistics chain. And then they were going to go after the rest of the union movement, um, which is one of the reasons why we had so much support, because to other unions, to other workers, this was obvious. and so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's at the end of the day, that's what it was about. I, I said that I would go into detail about that because it's also what Howard did to First Nations people, and we can talk about that as if, if you like, how that thing up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, there's so many things that are ridiculously shocking and confronting and unjust about you know any number of that that your father had to come here in order to have any kind of autonomy and say over his life or to be able to work for pay and accumulate wealth and then where it kind of goes from there I think um and I do want to hear you tell us more about that story as as things go on did you have any I think a lot of people in Australia today and overseas most of us have never been in a union. Most of us have never worked um, actively in a union. There's not a lot of firsthand understanding about what that's like. And there's a lot of stereotypes and 
sort of images in the headlines of kind of what a typical, you know, in Australia, we talk about all those typical union blokes, you know, and, and there's kind of an image that people have and that doesn't necessarily saddle up well to, um, something like empowering and supporting first nations rights and voices. So did you encounter prejudice and pushback within the union on that, or was there really support from the very core? No, you see, there's a long history of um, unions in this country, and especially my union, the Maritime Union, supporting First Nations struggle, supporting equality. I mean, of course, it's a it's almost 150 years old, my union, so it's not the entirety of its history, but uh, but but ahead of its time, certainly. Um, and I'll give you an example. Uh, several examples. In the 1940s, when the Pilbara strike was on, so Aboriginal stock workers and their families um, fighting for equal pay and decent treatment, um, the seafarers and wharfies refused to um, load the export from those, um, you know, from those pastoral stations in support of Aboriginal workers. Um, in the 1950s, I think it was the um, on, in Quandamooka. Uh, union supported a strike there, which was about equal pay. Uh, you know, Aboriginal workers weren't paying members on, you know, on these pastoral stations, they um, generally. Um, another example in the 60s, the Gurindji people and the Wavehill Walkoff, um, Vincent Lingyari, the, the famous that resulted in the, in the famous handful of sand from Gough Whitlam. Um, my union, the Wharfies in Darwin, were were first responders, and in fact said to Vincent Langari before he walked off, "We will support you." And so, uh, you know, this was something I don't have a union background, but learning about this as a young Indigenous man certainly made me proud to be uh, a union member, um, but also taught me a lot about using that power that we were able to build as workers to do more than fight for our own wages and conditions. And you mentioned the the perception of unions, um, particularly blokey unions, I suppose, but unions in general. I mean, there's this is part of the divide and conquer tactics of uh, people like John Howard over very a very long period of time, more and more with media support to do that. And so it's no wonder, but I guess that's what makes it important to talk about this in opportunities like this. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, I apologies if, if to anyone listening out there, you're not meaning to cause offense by sort of talking about, you know, the stereotypical union bloke or what it, but I do think it's important to kind of give voice to some of these things, right. And give an opportunity to clear up the, the sort of misconceptions or, to, or to go there. So was there a particular um, moment that stirred you to first begin to advocate for first nations rights from within the union movement, or was it just a natural evolution? I think it was natural, you know, I've suffered from prejudice myself, my family has, um, but uh, I think the evolution was gaining the tools from the union movement to to be effective in, in doing more, but also through the union understanding power dynamics, you know, the leverage and um, the importance of structure behind unity. So. So for those that may not understand this, they can say that we need, you know, unity as a slogan on, you know, at a rally or in a forum, you know, or on a podcast like this. Um, but what is often missing, I find, is the understanding that unity actually takes hard work. 
It takes compromise. For a large group, it requires structure and being able to choose your own representatives and hold those representatives accountable. And so this is what's missing from our First Nations movement is that John Howard, uh, you know, not only tried to divide and conquer workers, but he did Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as well. And so the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission which was a structure for which, you know, close to 700,000 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people could practice unity and, and leverage a political position. Um, he also went after that. So when I talked about how my union had the resources, it had the discipline, uh, and it had the, the, the community support, ATSIC didn't have that, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. Um, how would use the same tactics of demonising um, you know, the organisation, just as they demonised Wolfies and unions um, to be able to do such an awful action. Um, and because ATSIC wasn't well estab established, didn't have its own resources, wasn't constitutionally protected, uh, then it was much easier for him to destroy. And in 2005, he repealed it. And it was a voice that was silenced in a long history of that for First Nations people. Which, of course, brings us to the very important Uluru Statement from the heart, which you have become a very passionate advocate for and which is about enshrining a, a voice in the Constitution. Can you talk to us and introduce this for anyone who is not already super familiar or who has maybe heard of it but doesn't really know the inside story? What is the Uluru Statement from the heart and how did it come about? So the Uluru Statement... Uh you know, firstly, let's say it's a statement that covers uh, a long history of struggle. It actually begins before there was struggle by stating, you know, who we are and uh, and how long we've been here and, and, and our connection to country. Uh, it goes on to talk about um, the torment of our powerlessness, you know, that we are the most incarcerated people on the planet, that our children are still alien from their families at unprecedented rates, that in places like the Northern Territory, our youth languish in detention at almost 100% all of the time being Indigenous youth um, and that they could be our hope for the future. It then goes on to, pro to propose very specific solutions, that there be a constitutionally enshrined voice which would protect it from the likes of um, Howard and hostile governments uh, and that there be a Makarata Commission formed after that voice because the voice must input into what the Makarata Commission looks like uh, to, um, you know, to do truth-telling and to support agreement-making in this country. It came from 13 regional dialogues, but firstly, I should go before that. It comes from, uh, it starts at that very beginning, but it also, it is, it is shaped by many lessons from the past. That is to say that there have been many statements and petitions like it in the past that have all been dismissed by governments um, and, you know, the powers that be, basically. There has been many voices in the past as well. I mentioned the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. There was Fakatsi. There was um, the NAC. There was the AAPA, the first all-Aboriginal political organisation, they say, in the 1920s. Every single one of them has been silenced by a hostile government. So you can see the importance of us saying constitutionally enshrine this voice this time. We've learnt from, from the lessons of all these other ways that we've tried. Must put it out of the reach of the parliament. Um, 
and it invites the Australian people to do this. It, it, for this statement is not written to kings or queens or parliaments as before uh, because we know that we cannot, they will betray us, we cannot rely on them. Uh, so that's that's the Uluru Statement. That's where it comes from. It was dismissed by Malcolm Turnbull, the Prime Minister of the time in 2017. We haven't taken no for an answer. It's a growing people's movement. And the focus, the priority is very much trying to take, uh, convince politicians to put the question to the people in a referendum so that we can enshrine the voice because we know the people will vote yes. So why won't the politicians put it out there to us? Because they don't want to be held accountable for their constant failures, um, the failures that they've always made uh, and the harm that they've done to our people. Because the reason you see, the reason why the gap isn't closing, for anyone that's heard of closing the gap, it's talking about um, closing the gap in incarceration rates, you know, the eight-year, you know, around eight-year difference in life expectancy, uh, and on and on it goes, education, employment. There's massive gaps between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. Um, and I should digress. The Uluru Statement makes it clear that this is not an Aboriginal problem or a Torres Strait Islander problem. This is, we're not born innately criminal. You know, we're not, uh, we don't lack for love of our children. Um, we're like every other human being. And so if these gaps exist, the, the statement is saying there must be a structural and political problem. And that is, that is the answer to, um, that is the solution to address that structural problem first. Um, and so, uh, you know, we believe that when we have that strength of voice, then we can affect things, affect the decisions that are made about us uh, by holding politicians to accountable for their failures and giving them the good advice that they that they don't get when they pick and choose who represents us. They invite the Indigenous people to the table who they choose at the time, who's going to tell them what they want to hear and they can easily ignore. So the sort of, yeah, structure that we're talking about will be much different. So how would this voice kind of practically work? Who would decide who gets to be on it? Um, I mean, I not, not that we have to have figured out every little detail, but just is there a sense of what would be the process for coming together and then, you know, advising the parliament and what that would actually change as a game-changing thing compared to what we have today? First Nations people should choose their representatives um, and uh, the constitutional change should make it very clear that um, that representative body has the right to table advice directly to Parliament. Uh, that would make it very transparent as compared to now. So as I said, right now, politicians and bureaucrats choose who goes to the table to consult or negotiate, uh, and then they don't listen. But that's always uh, often behind closed doors, uh, and those relationships, or at least who's representing us, changes from meeting to meeting, um, policy changes from minister to minister or government to government every three years or so. Uh, so the power in this is that we would we would choose these representatives, like any other representative body. You know, it's no different, really. You know, in that in that regard. I mean, you know, you got representative bodies that are unions or employer associations. You know, on and on it goes. This is not something that's unusual 
in a um, you know in a democracy, especially you know representative democracy. Um, but the point that I want to make is that that gives us power, you know, and it's power that um, we should have and we should have had when Australia became a federation in 1901, when Australia first became. We shouldn't have been ignored then. Um, they shouldn't have said that we were going to die out. They shouldn't have made the policy to let that happen. Uh, this is a natural progression for Australia. Yeah, look, thank you for just walking us through some of it. I mean, I've I've had a look through the website and it talks about some of the FAQs and, um, you know, one of them is, well, don't Aboriginal, you know, don't Indigenous people already have the opportunity to make their voice heard through Parliament like everyone else by voting for their local MP? Or this is going to be divisive because it permanently sets up a kind of separate body. What's your answer to to things like that, because I know that one of the things you do is actually travel around the country talking to groups of people about the Uluru Statement and what it is and what it means and getting asked all kinds of questions. Is there anything that you just want to clear up? Oh, well, firstly, um, you know, it's it's consistent, as I said, with our representative democracy. Uh, and I'll explain it this way. The, the states in this country were the colonies of this continent when the British came, right? They established uh, various colonies, New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania, a program of genocide, forced assimilation. That's a fact. These are truths. Um, but those colonies um, negotiated the terms of Australia in the late 20th century uh, in the constitutional dialogues. And in 1901, they came to an agreement and that was endorsed by the citizens um, on how Australia um, moves forward, you know, or becomes. And First Nations people weren't a part of those discussions. If we were to do that again today, who today would disagree that First Nations people would be at the table negotiating how power is shared in this country? I don't think there'd be many. It'd be a, a very, very small minority of the ignorant. Uh, and we're not going for, we're not claiming the sort of power that states have. Um, this is a very generous proposal that we're making. We're just claiming that we want to be recognised um, with the establishment and the constitutional enshrinement of a representative body. Um, that is a strong form of recognition and it will also be the answer for this nation on how it um, improves the relationship with Indigenous peoples and addresses all of those issues that have been caused by colonisation. Uh, it's the only way forward and um, and people shouldn't be afraid of that because the other part of it is that when, if you think of the constitution, well, one way to think of it firstly is it's a rule book of the nation, right? It's the rule book that even the politicians need to follow. Um, think of section 44 and politicians losing their job because they had dual citizenship. That's how powerful it is. But the other way to describe the constitution is that it's the nation's DNA. It is what um, makes us. It is the bounds from within with which we grow. Um, and if it's our DNA and it has not recognised First Nations people in a strong way, then Australia is is woefully incomplete. And this um, is something that must be done for Australia to become complete. We acknowledge country, we acknowledge First Nations people, we celebrate it, our kids more and more do it in schools. They're proud of this culture. 
a culture that's over 100,000 years. And when that is in our DNA, then we have a lot to be proud of. The longest, you know, Australia becomes one culture, basically, over 100,000 years old. everyone just a quick plug to say if you're enjoying this conversation then we would love you to spread the word we are a brand new show building an audience about not only what is the best version of us how do we live our best lives or be our best selves but also how do we build the systems that are worthy of us that can rain down positive change for others that can set us all up for success and we would love you to subscribe. We would love you to spread the word. We would love you to go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review. And if you would like to know a little bit more or get more content from Australia Remade, you can check out our website, australiaremade.org or follow us on social media. We're getting better at it. You can go to Instagram or Facebook, or I think we're also on Twitter. That would be Millie's department. All right, everybody, back to the show. us a little bit more about the the Makarata Commission and the meaning of that word and what the idea is there behind it. Makarata is a Yolni word. Yolni people are from northeast Arnhem Land, the Aboriginal people there. Uh, It is a dispute resolution process, basically. It's a way of making peace. Uh, We were masters of this sort of process in this country, especially when it comes to land. Um, And one of the ways the experts know this is that um, because of how our language has evolved, so many hundreds of unique languages all, you know, on one continent, uh, you know, that's an indication of uh, understanding our place and what land we belong to, not what land we wanted to conquer and expand, you know, and and therefore wipe out other languages. so, yeah, Makarata is the Yolnu style of dis- uh, name for this sort of dispute resolution process. And I imagine uh, all First Nations and, uh, and in the Torres Strait would have had similar processes. The probably remarkable thing about this dispute resolution process is how uh, it is accepted that when the grievance is resolved, uh, the um, aggrieved party welcomes the, you know, the the wrongdoer, I suppose, into the family as a loved one. Uh, and that means basically that there is a stronger relationship than there was before. This is one of the reasons why we use the word Makarata um, as the culmination of our agenda is that we would have this great relationship and come together as one. Well, I certainly hope that that is something that, um, I mean, what other choice do we have but to push until our politicians listen and make this happen and take these steps together. And I love at the end of the statement, in 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our track across this vast country, and we invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. It's um, it's just such a powerful and eloquent statement. And it's not very long, you know, it's, it's not a book, it's not a chapter, it's a statement, you know, and I encourage everyone to go and read it if you haven't already, to let the, read the words, to look at the painting that surrounds it, to read the story of how it 
came together. It's something that we can be so incredibly proud of. Um, and, you know, speaking of words and beautiful things written, you've now gone on to, to become quite a prolific writer yourself and to write books advocating for the Uluru Statement, um, both for adults and children. Is, was that a plan of yours from the beginning, like when you first got involved, or what made you decide to do that? No, I never expected to be a writer, not even when I was campaigning for the Uluru Statement. Um, I decided to write uh, a book only when I'd been travelling with the Uluru Statement, so the, the actual canvas. So it's more than a statement, it's a sacred object as well, a canvas that uh, has a statement printed in the middle Around that is the names and signatures and country of over 250 First Nations people that were there doing the hard work of coming to a consensus and endorsing that statement. Um, and then around that is the chukupa, um, the artwork um, by Anangu Law Woman uh, that, that symbolises uh, an ancient coming together, ancient songlines coming together, uh, very much like we did, you know, those signatories. Um, and uh, I travelled the country for 18 months, uh, you know, so I talked about my union's solidarity with First Nations and what happened was Arnie Pat Anderson, one of the great leaders of, um, you know, the, the making of the Uluru Statement, she was the co-chair of the Referendum Council that, uh, that basically undertook the process that led to it. Um, she went and met with our union National Secretary Paddy Crumlin and, and asked for me to be lent to the cause basically and um, and so I had the resources which was unique in that time because there was no resources the, the government almost immediately dismissed the statement uh, and so there was no money for us to campaign with we just did what we could with what we had so I traveled the country 18 months building a, a people's movement and I realized after uh, probably 12 months on the road, you know, I traveled constantly in that time, I realized that there was all these wonderful Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that I had met that had told me uh, not only many great stories, but also many great ways that they understood the Uluru Statement and why it was important. And uh, so I called Marcia Langton, a friend of mine, and I said, Marcia, I've got this idea for a book. My initial idea was just that it would be some of the photos that I'd taken on the road and very simple interviews, a bit like a coffee table book. And uh, she said it was a great idea, introduced me to the publisher, Hardy Grant, and away I went. And I think I, I pretty much wrote the manuscript in only around six months from when I first interview. It was 20 people that I interviewed, um, it's over 260 pages and a small fine print, a small print, the font, which is the only criticism I've had about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I read some of those reviews online, like, great book, but for older eyes, we're, we're struggling to read it. <laughs> and then when did you get the idea to actually do a children's book as well? Uh, so when I, when I wrote the first book, and actually, no, it was during my travels with the statement that I was inspired by a couple of things. Firstly, it was as a campaigner seeing how my children would come home from school and tell me about what they'd learnt about the Larrakia seasons or language, uh, really excited. And so I was learning from the kids about Larrakia culture and I also noticed how proud they were of 
Aboriginal culture, even though the Torres Strait Islanders, right? And then also when I, early in the campaign, I had the Uluru Statement canvas hanging up in public at a footy game in Brisbane and this boy stopped his family in their tracks, dragged them over to the statement and pointed to the statement and said, that's the Uluru Statement from the heart and then told them what he knew about it. And so here's this kid just teaching his whole family about the Uluru Statement because some teacher somewhere um, learnt about the statement, didn't wait for it to be curriculum or, you know, any teaching resources and taught the kids about it. And so I thought I've got to write a children's book that the kids, you know, our great supporters here can can help to build the people's movement as well. Wow. Um, I've got tears in my eyes as you tell me that story. I've got two young kids and I can't wait to read your book to them. So thank you. Thank you for writing oh, both of those Um and amongst your others. And of course, you've got a new book out now too. It was released here in Australia just in time for Father's Day. And it's called Dear Son, Letters and Reflections from First Nations, Fathers and Sons. And um, with all your books, I'm going to have, of course, the, the links on our website and in the show notes for anyone who wants to go and find them. But where did the idea for this particular book come from? Obviously, you've got the hang of it now. You're in your writing mode. Did you just want to keep going? Yeah, I've got the bug. Uh, I enjoy writing. I really love it, not only because of how you can transfer things to other people and help them understand, but also the way it helps me frame things in my own mind. Uh, it's great for public speaking as well because I find, you know, when I've drafted things a few times, it's it becomes, you know, part of my repertoire when I speak and it helps. Uh, but this particular book called Dear Son, uh, I was at the Perth Writers' Festival with Tara June Winch. Uh, I met her there. She's an award-winning Wiradjuri author who wrote The Yield, which um, I think it won the Stella Prize. Uh, and... We were just talking, I've got five kids and uh, she thought that I had a, a really nice nature, I suppose, and she said, you'd be perfect for writing a book about fatherhood and uh, this is something that we need to do, you know, talking about, you know, our, our people and, and what we needed. Um, and so I said, oh, I don't think so, you know, because with all my flaws as a man and the mistakes that I've made as a father and a partner and all those things, I thought, uh, that sounds pretty challenging. Uh, but um, I thought about it for a couple of months and I said to Tara I'd think about it and I read uh, Teela Reid, um, another activist and, and great campaigner for the Uluru Statement, a Wiradjuri Wildwan lawyer. She suggested um, I read, because um, we often talk about reading books and that, she runs Blackfella Book Club on Instagram. I encourage people to follow that. And she said um, she gave me uh, James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time. Uh, and one of those essays in that book is uh, an essay which is in the form of a letter to his nephew. And when I read that, it just sort of sparked for me that this is the way that I could write about fatherhood. And so I, um, I started to draft a letter to my son, my 19-year-old son at the time. And um, one of the things that I wrote in that was advising him about understanding people's perspectives. And so that led to me inviting other First Nations men to, to write in this book as well. 
Yeah, I love that you have gathered 12 other men. Um, is that right? To, to write to their sons and, you know, people like Stan Grant and Charlie King. And I'm just wondering what was their reaction? Were they hard to convince? Was there anyone that you really um, had to work on a little bit? Or what were some of the things that came up for the men that you approached? Uh, no way. Pretty much every guy that I approached uh, agreed to do it. Um, not all of them. You know, there was a couple that um, that were too busy or thought it too challenging. Um, but, uh, you know, the men that did contribute and uh, completed letters were very, very generous. Um, if anyone reads the letters, you'll just see how generous they are with their, you know, um, how much they um, put out there as men, you know, as, as people, um, about their inner feelings, about the mistakes they've made, you know, the challenges. Uh, and, you know, it's a it's a real, um, you know, they've, they've been very vulnerable in this. And, uh, yeah, so we worked together. There was lots of tears, you know. Um, some men I really had to help to draw out the, the personal stuff. And, um, but, yeah, it's, it's such a, a wonderful thing that they've done. I was wondering if you would do us the honour of maybe reading a bit from the book now. There's an excerpt that you'd like to share? Yeah, I'll read part of my letter um, to my son. It's bookended, uh, this book, with letters from me. One's, the first one is uh, to my son, about 4,000 words, and then a very short letter to my father, which is only around 700. But uh, I'll read this part here from my letter to my son. With my obligation to the following generations in mind, I thought it would be good for you and me both if I were to write about fatherhood. Reading books and writing thoughts are wonderful things. I can hear you saying, yes, Dad, I know. You tell me everything we talk. Well, son, this letter is my example for you. I will write to you about the behaviours that I once thought were acceptable for men, behaviours I now know are wrong. I will also write about the effects of historical trauma that I have passed on to you and your sisters. For good measure, I have invited some friends to write about fatherhood as well because different perspectives are, sent, are essential. I want you to learn to be a good man, a good partner to your loved ones, a good human being, and I want you to understand that there are more ways than one to do this. If you learn humility, empathy, and how to love the way our ancestors did. Ah, oh, thank you for sharing that. You say that listening is a language. This is the title of one of your poems, and dear son, could you tell us more about that? What do you mean by that? Well, that um, that set of words I actually first wrote in my first book, Finding the Heart of the Nation, and it's just a, a little introduction. I think it was to the interviews because you know the, that book starts with my own journey, um, the story of the Uluru Statement, politically and spiritually. And then it goes into the, you know, almost 20 interviews. And I found when I'd never interviewed anyone before, um, in that first book, the I think it was the publisher said, Thomas B. Hatt, because I wanted to do 30 interviews, you know, around two from each state sort of thing, uh, each region. And um, the publisher said, be happy if you can do nine interviews, Thomas. You know, it's, it's not an easy thing. You know, you've got to nail down the person and then, you know, uh, transcribe and, and all the rest that I had to do. Uh, and so 
but I, I found, you know, like I said, after about six months, probably less than six months, I'd done uh, close to 20 interviews. But I found when I first started interviewing people, the first one was on Gurindji country, actually, uh, Rob Roy Double R, um, you know, in Kalkarindji, a little Aboriginal community. But I found that I needed, it was not that easy to listen, right? That I had to stop interrupting, even, you know, the equalizing or acknowledging that we do in a conversation and just listen. And when I really started to listen to these people, uh, their stories became so much more rich and easier to transcribe onto paper, basically. And, um, you know, and that's why I said, you know, listening is a language in itself. Yeah, I feel like um, it's – we live in a very noisy time and there's a lot of pressure to talk and there's not necessarily the same social – reward or visibility in listening mm. and learning to listen well. I also love what you've written in Dear Son, Learn From Our Children. We shared this um, on Instagram, speaking of talking uh, just this week. A child is curious about difference, not prejudiced, eager to learn rather than ignore. We can learn from the innocence of our children. Want to tell us any more? Just riff off that for a minute. Uh, I just think that uh, you know, in thinking about and writing about uh, you know the the experiences with children in regards to this campaign, um, and you and and having talked at many schools now and listening to kids ask questions, you know, about the children's books, I've learned that the children imagine well. Well, firstly they say, why haven't we done this yet? Why aren't Indigenous people recognised? You know, we're so proud of this culture, you know. And it occurred to me that children imagine the world as it should be, right, with their innocence. They haven't been taught prejudice. Um, they haven't been taught these biases yet. Um, and then, you know, if if we learn from them, then that's what we need to do, right? So when you look to them, when you look to our future, what are your hopes and dreams and how can the people listening to this help to make those realized? What can people do to be part of the progress that we need to make? Well, the very simple answer is, and the only answer, let's be really political here, put pressure on politicians to take on, to, to have the courage to take us to a referendum to enshrine a First Nations voice. It's the only form of recognition that First Nations people want in the Constitution is with that sort of power. And as I said, it is a generous proposal. You know, it's not um, it's not a third chamber to parliament, as, you know, Turnbull tried to say. Um, it's simply the, the power to be able to hold politicians to account um, by ensuring that that advice that we have is put transparently um, to the parliament so that the people and our people can see what's going on. The reason, I'll explain more why this is my answer. The reason is, is that every other issue that we try and address for First Nations people 
is connected to the decisions that are made in the federal parliament and and the state and territory parliaments, but ultimately the federal parliament as the ultimate power in a federation. You know, all laws must be consistent with federal law. So um, whether we're talking about the justice system, you know, the incarceration rates, things like that, whether we're talking about crowded housing or the cost of food in communities or you know, um, service provision to remote communities. Everything that we campaign for is affected by this one big campaign. Um, lastly about that is also it's a matter of simple recognition. It's actually a matter of completing Australia's DNA and, uh, and addressing what was ignored back in 1901. And so you would just encourage people to make a personal contact with their federal MP to say, I support this and I want you to as well. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it's a big action, you know, and, and I understand for some people that would be quite challenging to do actually. Um, but it is a very important action because right now we need to convince them, you know, heading towards a federal election next year as well. Um, we need to convince all political parties to make an election commitment to a referendum in the next term. Uh, so get stuck into them. You know, any way that you can make the Uluru Statement visible as well, social media, sharing it, um, that is a very important thing as well, not just for the politicians to see who need to make a decision, but we also know from our research that the more people that read the Uluru Statement or hear it, um, the more compelled people are to say that they would vote yes uh, to a referendum. And that's important, you know, because, um, you know, polling is important to give politicians the, the confidence to take it to the people. Are you optimistic that this is something we can get done in the next term of government? Are you feeling momentum from inside the different political parties? Yeah, I'm confident that we can do this. Uh, I know that the Australian people are ready for it. Um, really, the, the last barrier for us is getting the politicians to support it. I think if people transfer their sentiment into action, then we can convince them to do it next term. Uh, and so, um, but I, look, the other thing is that I'm confident that this is going to be achieved one way or another. Um, as I said, you know, the children are ready for it, but we can't leave it for the children to do. So let's get it next term, put the pressure on. Mm, absolutely. And once it is done, it will be one of those things that will seem so obvious and so inevitable. And of course, that was always going to happen. Our children will marvel that it took us this long, as they rightly already do. Um, it's been such a pleasure to listen to you today and to learn from you. And thank you so much for sharing. If you'd like, we could do we could end on a couple of just lighthearted your answer can be serious or silly, rapid-fire questions that we ask us um, at the end when we have a bit of time. The first one is, what is something that is making life better for you right now? Uh, actually, being home all the time. <laughs> I've traveled so much over the years. Uh, you know, I mean, there's some uh, – COVID is terrible um, and everything like that. But as far as my family life goes, uh, I'm very lucky to be home in a comfortable home with my Wife and kids. Yeah, I hear you. What is something, and again, it can be big or little, serious or silly, is there something that you changed your own mind about recently? Hmm, I don't know. Um, it was a very good uh, thing to change my mind about writing a book about fatherhood. I'm so proud of the outcome. Um, but, uh, yeah, nothing else I can think of. 
<laughs> oh, I'm very glad you did. Um, is there something that people get wrong about you? Just something that they're not expecting or a misconception that you find yourself clearing up? Uh, perhaps people think that I'm uh, outgoing, I suppose, or, or, you know, they often say I'm a good public speaker and, and leader and everything. But, um, no, the every speech I make, even this podcast with you, I am very nervous before I do it. And, uh, you know, I guess, uh, but I think, I think there's a lesson in that, you know, that um, we should just follow our heart and then we, we can do it well, right? Absolutely. And... Speaking of following, if people want to follow more of your work and go and support the Uluru Statement from the Heart, do you have a website that you recommend or a social media where they can find more of you? Yeah, www.fromtheheart.com.au is a website with resources to support the campaign, including you know template letters to politicians. There's another website that supports the campaign as well, www.ulurustatement.org. Um, yeah, so so go there for some great resources. I recommend people go to and have a look at the Referendum Council final report, which has a whole lot of information about the Uluru, the process to Uluru, and and the Uluru statement is actually more than that one page. It's eighteen pages, so there's a, a bit of a history of the struggle there um, that comes with it. The evidence of what happened in the dialogues, you know, and how it was a consensus is there as well. Um, yeah, so there's there's a good start. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much for this um, beautiful conversation and for your leadership and for your writing. really encourage everyone to go and your books are obviously available wherever good books are sold. We have links up to all of those in our show notes. And thank you, Thomas Mayer. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you, Lily. have it everybody Thomas Mayer isn't he just a wonderfully warm and delightful and generous person thank you for coming on the show and all of the things that you explained and shared with us today with your story I just know that one day our children are going to look back at this and marvel that it took us this long to get here so let's make it happen in the next term of parliament let's have an enshrined voice to our parliament for First Nations people that is representative and accountable. Let's have a Makarata Commission and embed this idea into the very DNA of our country that we come together after a struggle to learn from the past and to heal and to move forward stronger than we were before. I hope that everyone has enjoyed this conversation. Please help to spread the word so others can discover it too. And we will see you next time on The Remakers. been the remakers a podcast by australia remade we celebrate aboriginal and torres strait islander peoples and cultures at the very heart of what it is to be australian that is 60,000 years as the oldest continuing civilization on earth i record this podcast from dara country which is just north of sydney 
I want to pay my deepest respects to elders past, present, and emerging on this land. I also want to thank my collaborator-in-chief and sometimes special guest co-host, Millie Rooney. Also a huge thank you to our producer, Anna Wilson, and our chair, Louise Tarrant. If you like our theme song, it is by the Duke of Norfolk. You can learn more about Australia Remade and get links and show notes over on our website. That's australiaremade.org and click on the podcast tab. Follow us so you never miss an episode. Be sure to spread the word. If you're feeling extra amazing, you can rate and review. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We will see you next time.